Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast. 2.45 billion people log into Facebook every single month, making it the world's largest social media platform. With its subsidiary products, Instagram and WhatsApp, Facebook apps are the most commonly used apps on our phones, hoovering up more of our attention than any other company. All of this usage provides a lot of data. The company can see our likes and our dislikes, our hobbies and our interests. It knows our birthday, our spouse, our kids, our place of work. And from all this information, it can start to determine our most likely holiday destination, our favourite TV show, and maybe even our innermost thoughts and desires. It's now become common to hear that your online data knows more about you than your spouse. But is this true or is it science fiction? To help us understand what Facebook knows and how marketers can use this data, I've invited Patrick Fagan on the show. Patrick is a behavioural scientist most famed for being the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica, so he knows a thing or two about Facebook data. He's now Chief Science Officer at Capuchin, and here he is talking through his career. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. So hi, I'm Patrick. Sometimes I ask people to call me Pat because research says uh, it makes me more likable. So hopefully that's working. Um, there was a study which said if you use a short name or a nickname, you're seen as warmer. So that's the thing I kind of do as a applied behavioral scientist is take the academic science side of psychology, but then kind of practically apply it in the real world for real behavioral outcomes. So on the academic side, I'm a part-time lecturer at a couple of universities, and I publish some peer-reviewed papers on things from Facebook psychology to facial expressions and a few things in between. Um, then on the professional side, uh, so I think for 11 years, I suppose, 12 years, uh, I've been doing behavioral science consulting and research uh, from a commercial point of view. So I kind of have a whole wide range of, of tools um, from implicit 
testing using reaction times to facial coding to psychometrics to kind of more traditional focus groups and interviews and so on uh probably the most relevant thing or certainly the most interesting thing um is that i was the lead psychologist at cambridge analytica for eight months so i will caveat that by saying i was in the commercial department it was almost entirely commercial work selling bottled water rather than politicians uh, although i have worked on political campaigns since then as for how i got into psychology i mean it's quite embarrassing but when i was 17 18 uh, i was really into pickup artists you know the game and such um it was all the rage at the time and being i don't know 17 years old only really had one thing on my mind you know it's embarrassing and a little shameful uh, to look back on it but that's certainly what got me into it and they they do dig into psychology quite interestingly uh looking at evolutionary psychology body language priming all these kind of things so yeah that's my my life story Patrick gave a brilliant talk at NudgeStock 2020 where he walked through what a marketer can infer from someone's online behaviour. He showed how you could predict someone's personality simply by looking at their Facebook likes. I was keen to learn more about this, so to kick off our discussion, I asked what a marketer can learn from somebody's online behaviour. Um, so you can tell a huge amount in theory about someone. You can see, for example... Well, Facebook can see from looking at your Facebook likes, it can predict personality, life satisfaction, intelligence, sexuality, even if, for example, you like beer pong and Michael Jackson's music, uh, you're more likely to be extroverted. And, and this makes sense because personality is, you know, an underlying disposition that you have, probably neurobiological, maybe slightly learned, that predicts consistent behaviours across all sorts of situations. If somebody is an extrovert, they're more likely to listen to energetic and rhythmic music because they like sensation and they're reward-seeking. I mean, that's the main, one of the main things that defines extroversion is being more reward-sensitive because that part of the brain has, has more volume. Um, so they're more likely to listen to like dance music or pop music. They smile more because they're more, as I say, reward-seeking, more, more happy and positive they also uh one study found they're more likely to wear faded shoes i suppose because they're more active they move around more but as you can see there are certain cues that can be used to infer someone's consistent personality traits um and then you can from that inference predict how they'll behave in other situations um so if you can infer that somebody's extroverted because they wear a, a fat boy slim t-shirt and they smile a lot and they have faded shoes you can then predict, for example, that they'd be quite good at sales maybe or that they spend a lot of time socialising with other people. But yeah, the point being there's certain footprints and, and cues that we leave in the world that are very accurate and predictive for personality and therefore being able to tell how, in which way a certain person will act. Uh, one study I like to talk about was they looked at food preferences and people who like bitter foods like dark chocolate and gin they tend to be more disagreeable. Um, so they're higher on so-called dark traits um, and lower on agreeableness. And so literally sweet people like sweet foods and vice versa. Uh, and there's actually, I know it sounds kooky, but there's a lot of studies which have, or a fair few studies which have supported this, finding that, for example, eating sweet foods makes people friendlier and more kind of empathetic. So you can see, as I say, how these digital footprints can predict personality quite well. The caveat to that is there's all sorts of noise in the way of this theory. 
Um, there's the collection of the data, the analysis of the data, the interpretation of the data. Then there's the, um, the execution in terms of sending the messages to people. You know, if you're sending extroverted people an extroverted message, is it an extroverted message? And are you actually reaching those extroverted people? Is your, is your model for finding those extroverted people, is it any good? In theory, yes, data is very good for telling certain things about people and for targeting them with messaging. But there's all kinds of, at the minute, kind of technical barriers to overcome. Um, so it's nuanced, but in theory, yes, you can tell a huge amount. Patrick talks at length about how small cues from an individual's online behaviour can help reveal telling insights into that person's life. One example he's given in the past, based on academic research, was around individuals that showed an interest for celebrity news online. Based on this one cue, researchers could predict that the individual had a personality that is more disorganised, outgoing and open. Using this insight, plus a digital footprint of thousands of other individuals with similar interests, Patrick could then predict that the individual was more likely to be unfaithful and more likely to cheat on their partner. In fact, Patrick found that adverts suggesting infidelity for Ashley Madison or Tinder, for example, work far better with these types of individuals. Who would have thought that there was a link between celebrity news and being unfaithful? But our online behaviour can help reveal that. It's scary, but it's eye-opening. Clearly, a few likes or shares can reveal a truly intimate insight into our own lives. But how much data is needed? How many likes do Facebook need to predict our personality? I asked Patrick just this. Well, there was that study with Facebook likes where they built a personality predicting algorithm using people's Facebook likes. And they found that I think it was around 200 Facebook likes, 250 maybe, the average number of Facebook likes. If somebody has liked that many things, it can predict their personality better than can a friend, a family member, a roommate or a colleague. The only person who knows you better uh, in that sense is your spouse. But if the algorithm has, I think, 300 or more of your Facebook likes, it can be more accurate than, than your spouse. Um, that's on average, of course. But yeah, it's not a huge amount of data that's required, I would, I would think. I actually did a, a proof of concept project at the end of last year to, to look at this very thing. Like how much can you tell about people from fairly harmless, it seems, and fairly limited data. So we did a survey of 2,000 people where I asked media preferences. So what genres of book do they like? What genres of TV, uh, movies, and music? Then uh, I asked very kind of intimate questions. So I asked what insecurities people have, what prejudices, and also what uh, pornography they watch. Um, this was all voluntary information and all anonymous, of course, it was a survey, so it's self-report, so there's limits to it, but did find some interesting things. As an example, I was able to predict, uh, build a predictive model to see if people watch hentai or not, which is this kind of uh, Japanese um, adult material. Uh, so, for example, if somebody likes to watch animated TV shows, uh, read science and nature books and watch foreign language films, uh, those are just three examples of things that went into this predictive model for something which is really quite intimate and personal. As I say, there, there's limitations to the methodology and so on, but it was an interesting proof of concept that really quite harmless, 
seemingly incidental, unrelated things, and it's not a huge amount of data can actually predict something quite personal. I was shocked to hear that Facebook might know me better than my spouse, but perhaps I shouldn't be. There are plenty of studies that show how your personality can be predicted in odd ways. One study I thought of was cited in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. Gladwell describes an experiment by psychologist Samuel Gosling, which had 80 college students fill out a personality questionnaire about themselves. Next, Gosling had their closest friends fill out the same questionnaire. And finally, Gosling used complete strangers who had never met these students at all to fill out the questionnaire too. To learn about the students, these strangers were only allowed to look round the students' dorm room for 15 minutes and then base their answers off that. So these strangers knew nothing about the individuals they were being asked about. They were being asked all about this individual's personality and they'd never met them. But they'd spent 15 minutes in their bedroom. And apparently that is all you need. Gosling found that the strangers were actually more accurate than close friends predicting the student's personality, especially when measuring conscientiousness, emotional stability, and openness to new experiences. Just like with a couple of Facebook likes, looking around a dorm actually can give a more accurate gauge of what someone's personality is like compared to meeting them in person. To learn more, I asked Patrick for an example of how this data is used by marketers. So one, a very recent one was for a, an app. They wanted to increase downloads. And so we did research on their customers. So what kind of psychology they have overall, what motivates them. For example, they're much more promotion focused than most people, which means they're really focused on reward and gains and fun. Um, they are more impulsive and sensation seeking. So much more kind of emotional thinkers and so on. Uh, and all of these insights came together to, to make recommendations as to um, how to change the images. So for example, to put loads of emojis in, to use exclamation marks in the text, to brighten up the colors, these kind of things. And um, we just got the results back a couple of days ago and uh, compared to the control, which was their original landing page, um, conversion is up by almost 10%. There's other more kind of targeted personality type things. So for uh, American utilities insurer, we did some psychometric research on the market um, and did a psychographic segmentation, um, basically looking at the different segments of the audience based on personality, aesthetic preferences, motivations, behaviors in the category and so on, and then made very concrete creative recommendations based for each for each segment so segment a is very utilitarian they're no nonsense sensible not very emotional so just have an advert on facebook for them which is factual to the point minimalist etc whereas you have a different segment and they're more aspirational a bit more positive they're quite open to experience and creative so for them the advert should be more appealing to aspiration and a bit more kind of fluffy, feel-good aesthetics and so on. And it had a significant impact on conversion rates compared to what they were doing before. And the cost per acquisition was reduced by like, I think about $30 on average, which is a lot compared to what they were doing before. So it was really effective. Now, this may sound novel and different, but I think it follows a really familiar theme. You start by understanding your audience and then you build communications that resonate with that audience. 
This is interesting because you may assume, like I did, that there's no point in talking to the customer if you already have all this data. But Patrick doesn't think so. He thinks it's vital that you talk to the customer. Yeah, absolutely. You always have to go and talk to the customer, as it were, um, because you just you can't really do anything without understanding their perspective and how they think. So usually I split it into three stages. I call exploration, quantification, and execution. Um, so the exploration is kind of the qualitative, go and talk to people, do some desk research phase, do some literature review to see what you know past scientists and academics and researchers have found. Uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel, but it'll really help you build hypotheses as to what personality traits to look for, what might be motivating people to buy a certain product, what might be putting them off, etc. That gives you a great foundation. Um, but as I say, also really important, if possible, to go and talk to these people because it's a whole different way of seeing the world that they have to you as the researcher. The example I like to give is authority as a nudge works the whole world over. Um, it's one of those universal things. We all follow authority. But what authority looks like can differ between cultures. I mean, a white lab coat might work in the UK, but it might less, work less well in, say, Papua New Guinea. Or even within a culture, you have different groups where, for example, uh, some people might in the UK might listen to the World Health Organization, whereas other people might listen to celebrities or influencers. So you need to understand what that nudge actually looks like in practice for your, for your audience. And then following on from that is the quantification where you take all these hypotheses and you test them and you size them, for example, with a, a survey to, to many people uh, to see which nudge, for example, is likely to be most effective or which of these archetypes would best represent the ideal brand for them? Are they more likely to buy the fun joker or the serious intellectual, for example? And then once you've done all this research and you've tested and validated your hypotheses and ideas, finally, it's the execution, which is the so what? How do you actually turn that into creative or messaging? How do you send it to the right people? And how do you make sure it's working? I found this really, really interesting. Someone who has a huge amount of customer data still makes the effort to talk to the customer and hear their point of view. It goes against what many marketers might suggest. See, there's a widely held belief in marketing that talking to the customer isn't important. Instead, we should just look at their actions online. Surely that should tell us all we need to know. But as Patrick says, that's not the case. Talking to customers is still vital. Here's Patrick explaining why. For most of my career, I was very much of the mind that there's no point asking people anything. In the last couple of years, I've really realized the folly of my ways, that people can be rational and uh, conscious thoughts do influence behavior. And there is a point to asking people. But as with most things in life, it's quite nuanced. Both of those perspectives are true. But what I think qualitative research in particular is good for is understanding people's kind of attachments, perceptions, narratives, archetypes, kind of the stories they tell about the, the world. And also, I still very much believe that it is hard for people to tell you things explicitly. So it's more about asking people, well, asking them about emotions, but asking projective things. So a very basic example would be like, if this brand was a person, who would they be? And if they say, um, oh, it would be my mother, then that, tell, <laughs> that tells you something about the brand. Um, so projective techniques uh, are useful. People can volunteer information explicitly. It's very important to ask what, where, who, how kind of questions. Ask people about behaviours that they can reliably tell you about. 
So in surveys, if you want to find out how often people visit a art museum, you can just ask people that. They can tell you that quite accurately. If you want to know if they would buy a piece by a new artist, they can't really um, explain that or answer that as well consciously. So that's where something like implicit testing might come in. So yeah, qualitative is great for that kind of autobiographical reconstructive questioning. Where were you? Who are you with? What were you doing? But tending, if possible, to stay away from the why questions, because then you're asking people to um, uh, tell you what they think they think and to give you their best guesses, which people always think they're rational and they, that's not always super accurate. Patrick mentioned projective techniques. These are questions you can ask to help understand a customer's subconscious needs, motivations and attitudes and even perceptions. I encourage all of you who are interested to look up some projective technique examples. There are heaps of good ones online. But one that stood out for me is withdrawal techniques. Now, it's common for marketers to ask, what do you like about this product? Or what can we do to make you buy this product more? But those questions can lead to unreliable answers as most of us aren't actually that great at articulating why. One projective technique to get around this is to ask the customer to hypothetically imagine life without the product. For example, ask what would you do if this product didn't exist? Or what would you do if it wasn't available for six months? This type of question can provide a reliable insight into why customers require your product and when they might use a competitor. Anyway, to finish up, I asked Patrick about a study that didn't involve speaking to customers. No, in this study, Patrick attempted to predict what a person's personality might be by analysing the apps they had downloaded on their phone. Here's the study. So this was a project for a telecoms brand all telecoms brands obviously have data on what websites you visit and who you call and what apps you use and so on. So I looked at that data and it was all anonymized, obviously, to see how app usage clustered together. Um, and I found these clusters that seem to be fairly predictive of personality, by which I mean they look like personality traits as you'd expect. So for example, um, if someone uses LinkedIn and Evernote, they also use Sunday Times. Um, and this is all looks like conscientiousness being organized, reliable, and so on. Uh, if somebody uses Snapchat and Woucher, they'll also use fitness apps like the Adidas app. And that's probably people who are extroverted. So they like to go out and socialize and, and be active. And then if somebody uses Tinder, they also use WebMD and gambling apps. But I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that. Um, I think that's neuroticism. So people who need an escape, a distraction, and who worry about their health and so on. So yeah, really interesting to see potentially how uh, apps can can tell somebody's personality. Um, and then the future phase uh, will be, as I say, the the execution. So actually using this. So for example, sending promotional messages to people that speak to them in their terms, in terms of personality. So, for example, let's say you're, you have a promotion for a pizza restaurant um, and you can send the promotion to people high in openness to experience. So people who, for example, use Deliveroo, Etsy and Audible. So these creative, socially liberal, adventurous people, uh, you can say to them, um, come and try the exciting new flavors, come and try new things um, and have an adventurous type promotion message. If somebody is conscientious, so there's 
those LinkedIn users, you can say, uh, come and use this deal so you can be sensible and save some money. Uh, if they're extroverted, you can say, come and have fun with your friends. Um, so that's how it would be used. Patrick has shown that marketers can take cues from an individual's online data to understand what type of personality they have, what hobbies they have, and how they are likely to act. A marketer with 300 of your Facebook likes can, according to some studies, predict your personality better than your spouse. And a researcher who knows what apps you use on your phone can start to predict your behaviour. A startling amount of information is available about us online. And it got me thinking, are marketers able to get this insight on everyone? Or just for the few who heavily use mobile apps and online data? It got me wondering, can this information really swing an election? And is this unethical? Or is it just the natural evolution of marketing? To answer those questions and more, I've invited Patrick back on the show for another episode in two weeks. To make sure you don't miss that show, sign up to the Nudge mailing list. Simply click the link in the show notes and enter your email address. I'll send you an email as soon as the new episode goes live. And if you've enjoyed today's show, you will really love Patrick's book called Hashtag Hooked. It talks through what makes effective communication according to neuroscience and behavioral economics. And if you'd like to get in touch with Patrick directly, you can do so by heading to his website, patrickfagan.co.uk. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show. See you in two weeks for another episode of Nudge.